Blog Talk Radio. Radio program. I'm Susan Larison Dan, your host, and today we are going to have an interesting exploration, I feel, about a field that I have a feeling most of you have never heard about. And this is in my continuing series of bringing on researchers and scientists exploring really the the outer edges of research so that we can better understand our world and also the environmental factors and just what we don't completely know yet or are coming to know about how we actually work. And today, in just a moment, I am going to be bringing on the show K. John Morrow, Jr., Ph.D. He is the author of the recent book, Cancer, Autism, and their epigenetic roots. Um, John has been a researcher in the field of genetics and molecular biology for many, many years, and actually I know his institution, the University of Kansas, having lived there for many years, and I can tell you that 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 is a top-notch biological research institution. He also Um, has done research at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, and he he was a research director at Meridian Biosciences, and he is currently um, a president and CEO of Newport Biotechnology Consultants. And today we are simply going to honestly explore different ways of understanding how our bodies work and also the whole research mechanism that's in place in our society and how that's operating and how we can be looking at things from multiple angles. And so um, I invite you to visit um, John's website at newportbiotech.com, and there's also a link to purchase his book on Amazon. It is on Kindle, um, which makes it quite readily accessible to those of you who are very interested in this. And we are going to be talking about several diseases today. We are not just limited to cancer and autism. or diseases and conditions, I would say, however you characterize them. So um, I am just so delighted to bring John Murrow on the program. Welcome, John. Uh, yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to talk to you, and uh, I have this opportunity to tell you something about uh, what we know about uh, uh, autism and cancer and uh, the science of epigenetics. Yes, yes. Well, 
there's no doubt that that many of us have been personally touched by these and you know we there are so many different theories out there that many have heard and i really feel that very few people have heard about epigenetics and and the variability involved with it so um perhaps to to launch this discussion um a just starting out with a definition would would be helpful for everyone because many of us have never heard of this at all uh yes that was uh, what i found out and uh that was one of my motivations for writing the book when i talked yeah. to friends and associates of mine people who were not scientists had most of them had never heard of it or just only had the most vaguest idea of, of what it represented but essentially uh, what epigenetics stands for, epi means over, it means over genetics. And what it refers to are changes. We know that the genes are composed of DNA and that chemical modifications and the chemical groups in the DNA are what code for the signals that uh, the messages in our genes. Now, what epigenetics refers to are modifications that is proteins and factors that can hook onto the DNA without changing the DNA message, but turning signals on and off. And so actually what the epigenetics factors are, are they're actually uh, factors that regulate the expression of genes. And uh, it's known that about half the genes that, that human beings and animals and plants, uh, most creatures carry, half of these genes have these epigenetic markers next to them that allow them to be turned on and turned off by uh, factors in their environment. And so uh, there's some a lot more detail that I go into in the book, but yes. I think for purposes of this discussion, uh, what we want to refer to is uh, a control mechanism that's not coded in the DNA, but rather coded in factors, proteins, and other chemical groups that attach to and modify the DNA message so it turns it on and off. So that's in, in a very, very uh, succinct, very brief explanation. That's, that's what we refer to by epigenetics. And uh, yes. I should say that it's not the only way that we turn genes on and off. There's many other uh, mechanisms and factors, but we know now that uh, epigenetics is, is certainly quite important. It's a major part of uh, how how living creatures regulate uh, their expression of genetic information and how, for instance, embryos develop in over the course of their embryonic period, turning genes on and turning genes off and activating systems that result in final product, which is a completely uh, developed uh, human being or animal or plant. Yes, yes. Mm. Now... Um, John, part of part of your story, I feel, leading into this, and I might say to the audience that um, your book is very approachable. It is not; um, it doesn't require a a microbiology degree by any means. It it really is meant to present this in a way that is understandable to to anyone who's curious for to understand a a. a perhaps more realistic approach to some of these conditions. Um, and I guess the, the next question, and you do explore this in your book, is um, just lay the foundation for us on on the basis of the research and, and how this is coming to light and in some ways not having come to light um, and, and the environment in which your research is emerging 
um, within the scientific community. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, what I think actually the term epigenetics goes back for many, many years, back to, uh, as far back as the 1940s. So there were first observations made that uh, caused people to coin the term epigenetics. And uh, over the years, uh, it's been clarified through research on, on the structure of DNA, on the chemicals uh, that DNA is composed of, and uh, also on the uh, other factors, the uh, uh, proteins and the factors that modify DNA. And so uh, it wasn't possible to do this research for a long time because simply the technology didn't exist for you could take genes apart and you could put them back together, you could sequence them, you could study them, you could look at these epigenetic factors. And uh, a lot of what we know is based on studies that are done with experimental animals. Most of these are done on mice. And then studies that are uh, done using tissue culture cells, that is systems where, where you take cells from organisms and then you treat them with chemicals that will turn on these uh, epigenetic factors, activate them and deactivate them, and then correlate them. A lot of the, the recent studies that have been very, very interesting have been studies where they've looked at environmental factors. That is, they've looked at people who have been exposed to these factors, and they yeah. look to see if they have higher rates of ca cancer or higher rates yeah. of other types of diseases, or if these defects can be passed in utero, that is, if uh, a developing embryo, a developing fetus can suffer damage by the parental exposure to these factors. And once these factors are, are realized, once the child is born, how is this carried on through the development of the child? And, and most interestingly, can these factors be passed on to the, the next generation? That is, are children born with epigenetic changes, can they go ahead and pass these on to their children and subsequently pass them on to their children? And the answer is that we don't actually know. That is, there is some evidence that this takes place and some evidence that these, these epigenetic signals actually weaken over time. And so uh, this is one area that, that needs a lot more study. Well, I think one of the exciting issues and one of the frustrating issues about the study of epigenetics is there's a lot of disagreement by uh, people working in the area. There's a lot of areas that need a lot more attention. And then yeah. a lot of these studies are being done on populations. And so you're looking at populations of people that were, say, exposed to pesticides or yeah. exposed to herbicides or exposed to uh, uh, compounds, compounds called plasticizers, that is, compounds that are used to soften plastics. And these... These compounds are used in the linings of, of all sorts of uh, materials, canning right. materials, and uh, we get a lot of these uh, doses of these chemicals in our food. And the question is, does exposure to these chemicals uh, cause changes that, that could be epigenetic changes? And there's also a group of compound, compounds, a group of chemicals that are called uh, endocrine-disrupting compounds, and these are compounds that can affect normal hormonal uh, expression. And in turn, this normal hormonal uh, expression can affect the expression of these epigenes. 
Uh, now, to what extent is this a common phenomenon? To what extent is this a risk factor? We don't know. Uh, we know that you can you can study these uh, these changes in animals and you can study them in tissue culture cells. But it's important to realize, and lots and lots of people have commented on this, not just scientists but non-scientists, have yeah. commented on the fact that mice are not human beings. That is, you yeah. can do studies on yeah. mice, and yeah. maybe these studies tell you something, but you have to be very careful interpreting them because mice are very different from human beings for many, many reasons. Our genetic systems are different. We live a lot longer than mice. Uh, we have different enzymes in our liver that break down or activate compounds. Uh, there's just so many factors. So you have to be very, very careful when you try to generalize or you try to uh, advance these results and, and make generalizations that are based on your studies on tissue culture systems or on, on lab animals. Yes, yes. You know, what I appreciate about this, John, is, is we're – you know, we we've all heard. You know, and, and you know, I have quite a general audience listening. I mean, everybody has heard. Well, this causes cancer, or that causes cancer, or we make personal choices. Like one of the places I tend to walk, they've been spraying a lot. You know, and one day they were spraying near me with this giant. Um, I'm, actually, I complained. Well, you know, there's these everyday things that and choices that we make. Um, you know. Um, People are asking about GMOs. That's a whole different topic. I know, yeah, you know, it has the word, problem. you know, and 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 what? How how does this influ- influencing our choices in what will yeah. help us with our health? That's where this really touches everyone and those looking for answers um, who are facing some of these conditions, which have touched just about everybody. I, I would wager everybody listening to this show has been touched in one way or another, personally with a family member or in some way by one of these conditions. So we just want to understand. We want to understand what is happening. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, actually uh, your listeners might be uh, interested in, there's a very, uh, a very clever, very funny uh, program that was done by John Oliver on his show where he talked uh-huh. about scientific evidence and he talked about the problems with establishing scientific truth. And, of course, one of the things that he mentioned is that when people publish a scientific article uh, and this article is just a confirmation of a previous uh, uh, scientific observation, it doesn't get any attention. And so nobody wants to write articles in which they confirm observations by other scientists. It just doesn't get you anywhere. Although it's, it's boring. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's boring. It's just same old, same old. And, uh-huh. and so, so many times people make these observations that are based on single studies, and they may be wrong, and then they're never yeah. confirmed. And so this is one of the reasons that we get so much conflicting information. Also, yeah. also I have to say that a lot of times uh, the media is is very derelict. Uh, even even supposedly uh, responsible sources like the New York Times make mistakes and they exaggerate observations and they don't give caveats saying that this is uh, possible. They they want to say this is this is like the truth brought down on tablets from the mountain, you know. And so you have uh-huh. to be very very careful. And it's very difficult for, for lay people to interpret these things. In fact, it's, it's very difficult for scientists to interpret these 
uh, these observations. And so sometimes when there's certain, there's certain scientific observations that we look at, you know, for instance, everybody pretty much agrees that cigarette smoking is, is very, very hazardous, very, very dangerous, very destructive yeah. to your health. And there's other, I, I think there's a lot of other uh, observations that have been made and have been confirmed over and over and over again. And they've been confirmed by many, many different points of view, many different lines of attack. And so there's, there's some observations that, that we can take pretty seriously and say, yeah, that's something that we pretty much have to pay attention to. But then there's lots of other observations that are single scientific papers. Sometimes the group of individuals that studied or the number of animals is very small. And uh, sometimes uh, they don't give all the information. The uh, scientists that did the study don't give enough information for somebody else to repeat the study. And uh, so uh, there's, there's many, many places where people fall down and yeah. it makes it very, very hard to take some of these studies seriously. And so I think we, uh, when, when you hear these reports on television or in the news media, even in sources that are supposed to be very accurate and very authoritative, you've got to take them with a grain of salt. And uh, you've got to take them under advisement. You know, yeah. I would certainly say, you know, there's a lot of evidence, for instance, that, um, that exposure to uh, a lot of the chemicals, uh, uh, pesticides and herbicides that uh, are present in our environment, some of these these uh, pesticides and herbicides are um, environmental, or excuse me, endocrine disrupting compounds, the yeah. ones I mentioned yeah. a few minutes ago. And there's a good deal of evidence that they can really, really distort the expression of hormones so you can get abnormal sexual development uh, in animals, in uh, in uh, native environments, or you can get uh, abnormal expression in human beings. It could cause uh, sterility, that they could cause uh, uh, sexual dysfunction, that they could cause lots and lots of problems. And so uh, I think that uh, some of these, these chemicals, I think there's, there's accumulating evidence that they should be very carefully regulated or perhaps not used at all. And, yeah. and I, as I say, in many cases, there's more and more evidence accumulating. Now, there is one point that I did want to mention, and that is that, for instance, if we talk about radiation, we know that radiation causes mutations in the, in the DNA, and these mutations are associated with cancer. Now, yeah. uh, we also believe, uh, and there's more and more evidence accumulating, that some of these epigenetic compounds can cause changes that can induce tumors to form or uh, can speed the development of tumors. And a lot of these, these compounds are quite widespread. Now, the problem is that we don't have nearly as much evidence. That is, when we study radiation, we've been studying radiation for the last 100 years. But when we're looking at some of these compounds, some of these compounds were introduced into the environment last week. And so... Uh, so um, it means it's going to be quite a while before we can sort it out. And, I'm, and I know this is a very, this is not um, uh, a very satisfactory response, you know, because it doesn't tell the individual what to do, what to avoid. And in yeah. some cases, uh, some of these, these agents, some of these compounds that we're exposed to may do more good than harm, you know, and then some of them may do no harm at all, you know, and it, will be some time, but I think 
the bright side of this is that scientists all over the world are working on these questions, they're working on these issues, and even given the problems that people don't want to repeat studies or, you know, they want to make the first observation and then nobody ever follows it up, I still think that we're making a lot of progress moving forward to a better understanding of environmental risks and how epigenetics plays a role in these. You know, as you mentioned radiation, living on the West Coast, um, I, I feel like, you know, again, people listening out there, it has to do with everyday decisions sometimes. You know, I live in Portland where it rains a lot in the winter, and I walk out in the rain. And, and you know, there's been talk. You don't hear it as much now because things come in and out of the news so fast, which that's not always necessarily good, is, you know, is anyone fully looking at this whole Fukushima thing? You know, and how it's influencing, you know, anything. The wind pattern, if it did influence that, or the water, if it's dispersed, or, you know, there certainly is a popular concern for those who've paid attention, if you haven't forgotten about it, um, about this. And, and could that impact us epigenetically, you know, if we're exposing ourselves or is it, you know, do we know or is it even being studied? I guess that would be oh, yes. a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, with regard to radiation, I can tell you about three huge studies that have been done. One is the observations of the people that survived the bombings, the atomic bombings in World War II of Hiroshima yes. and Nagasaki. And they've been doing these studies that are ongoing. They studied the individuals who received high doses of radiation. They studied their children, their grandchildren. They're getting down to the great-grandchildren. There's a huge number of studies that have gone on. And these studies have shown that the people that were exposed to radiation and uh, in some cases their children have higher rates of various kinds of cancer. Now, the other studies that were, were done uh, were done on, on the uh, Chernobyl uh, survivors, that is the uh -huh. people who were exposed to radiation at the time of the, the uh, meltdown of the uh, power plants in Chernobyl. And what they find there is they find that there's certain kinds of cancers that are increased, and there's good evidence that th this increase is due to exposure to the radiation that these people suffered from. And yeah. also, after the, the meltdown of the power plants at Chernobyl, there were then the wind spread a lot of this radiation uh, all over the earth. Now, places that were immediately, that were close, right in the vicinity of Chernobyl, uh, people have, uh, in, these, in these areas were affected. Now, of course, today there's so much radiation around Chernobyl that uh, it's, it's a, a dead zone. People can't go back there. And uh, there's some people, however, that have stayed there and refused to leave. And uh, uh, they've uh, studied their health, and they have suffered various kinds of, of, of damage from radiation. Now, also, they've, uh, they've studied the plants and animals in the area around Chernobyl. And what they found with them is they seem to do very well. Now, also, they found that animals and plants uh, suffered high levels of mutation and radiation damage. Uh, this has been going on year after year because it's been years since the, the, the uh, Chernobyl incident occurred. The more recent example is the one of Fukushima in yeah, Japan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And th these people have, once again, there's an area around 
the power plants uh, where uh, there's very high levels of radiation and people cannot go there or they can go there only for very brief periods, for hours at a time. And it will be years and years and years before this area is cleaned up and before it is safe to go back to. And it's been a terrible, terrible disaster, a terrible catastrophe. And it's unfortunately it's still going on. You know. Yeah. So yeah. regardless and, of yeah. what Yeah, regardless of what you think about epigenetics, and uh there have been a lot of studies on the relationship between epigenetics and radiation. And of course we don't know nearly as much about the the way radiation causes changes, epigenetic changes, as we do with changes in the DNA, because the, the DNA studies have been going on for much, much longer. Yeah. Do you feel there's motivation to fund the epigenetic studies? Um, or do you see, I know you talk in your book about kind of the complex scientific climate um, and, and how research is conducted and 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 um and I just, you know, if are there those who who would maybe prefer that this not be surfaced, you know, because it's an actual understandable mechanism that, you know, it's not vague. It, it could be, right. you know, there's a direct relationship. Um, and, and how is that? How is funding occurring for these studies? Well, uh, now the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which funds most of the federal health-related research uh-huh. uh, got a big a bolus of money. They got a huge boost in uh, 2009 after Obama was elected because uh, there was something like close to a trillion dollars in spending to try and get the economy going again. And so what it meant was that the federal granting agencies that give out money for research uh, got spoiled. They got a big bolus of money, and they were able to fund a lot of the studies. Now, since then, the adjusted for inflation uh, amounts that the federal granting agencies, National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, the amounts of money that they have to spend have dropped every year when you adjust for inflation, except for just this last year. Surprisingly enough, Congress was able to pass a budget which did include a lot of money for research. Now, the way this money, this research, these research funds are, are given out is the National Institutes of Health sets priorities, and they have a, a big epigenetics program which funds research in epigenetics. So uh, now, if you talk to the people that are doing the research, they will tell you, and I think they're right, there's a lot of smart people that are writing good proposals, but these proposals don't get money because there's simply not enough money to go around. There's just too many people competing yeah. for a limited yeah. amount of money. Now, that, yeah. that being said, the National Institutes of Health, I think their budget is something like $45 billion a year. It's a lot of money, $45 billion with a B. Uh, yeah. Now, National, uh, the National Science Foundation, I think their budget, their budget is smaller. I think it's around $12 billion, something like that. But uh, the granting agencies, they do have quite a bit of money. In addition to that, uh, there's uh, a foundation, there's an autism foundation that funds research. There's a lot of private foundations. Uh, The states, actually, uh, all the states in the United States support universities to one extent or another, and they put money into uh, providing research facilities and providing salaries for faculty members and uh, promoting research. Uh, there's private foundations 
Uh, I don't know, the Gates Foundation not so much, but there's a lot of other foundations that support uh, health-related research. And probably every disease, for instance, there's, there's a disorder called Prader-Willis syndrome, uh, which has an, an epigenetic basis. And there's a foundation that uh, supports grants for uh, studies, research studies in this area. So there's a lot going on now. Uh, and I think I, my feeling is that the people that are making the decisions are trying to do the best they can. These are human uh-huh. institutions, uh-huh. and, uh, and they, they fail. They may fund bad ideas or they may fail to fund good ideas. They may make mistakes in both directions. But I think for the most part it's, it's not for, for lack of trying to do the right thing. I think there is a commitment to try and, and spend the taxpayers' money in, in the best way possible to get the best science uh, to come out of it and do the, the best, most meaningful studies. Now, could we use more money? Sure. I mean, there's, I, I know lots of young people who are starting out and have a lot of difficulty uh, getting uh, federal grants to fund their research. It's very, very competitive, and uh, it's very, very hard work to develop proposals, to develop good ideas, and to get the attention of the people that, that read the proposals and make the decisions to fund the research. You know, yeah. But by and large, I, I, think, I think we could use more money, but I think that the money that's given out, I think, is probably uh, given out about as best we could hope for. You know, if we had more money, yeah. we could fund more study. And, yeah. uh, and I guess you, you could ask the question, well, could you have too much money? Could you have so much money for funding research that you fund bad ideas. And, of course, the answer to that is possibly. But we're a long ways from being in that position. I would imagine. I would imagine that's pretty far away. And, you know, I will tell you that that part of the the motivation today is there may be young people listening right now who, um, you know, they're on summer break and they're just listening to this show on Blog Talk Radio, and they're inclined to study this. Um, you know, it's right. an exciting new field, or it's not actually new, but it seems to have some real potential, especially anyone there. Nowadays, so many of our young people, they're very concerned about the environment. It seems like um, the young people especially are concerned and that this is a mechanism of studying um Studying something without the without the vagueness. I mean, of course, if you're in microbiology, nothing's vague. But but it just it seems like it would be a very satisfying field to to consider oh, yeah. going into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am convinced of that, and and I think that when we look at at what we need to know, we desperately need studies that would test the effects of some of these these compounds that we're exposed to in the environment. Now, that being said, there's many, many different compounds, but uh, what we learn, you know, what students learn when they take chemistry courses is these chemical reactions, there's, there's different classes of chemical reactions, and there's a small number of them, actually, you know. And so you can say, well, if we could, if we could study the effects of certain compounds, certain lead compounds, that would be representative of a whole class of compounds. And this is exactly what people are doing. Then we can make generalizations and we could say, well, these kinds of plasticizer compounds or this class of drug or this class of herbicide or endocrine disrupting compound, these classes are things we really want to watch out for 
because we know we're building up a body of evidence that implicates them as being really serious health risks. And that's, yeah. I think that, that's the kind of studies that, that we need to do. People are doing them, uh, but they're very, very hard to do. A lot of times uh, when, they do, when they do studies on human populations, uh, you're trying to put together a group of a so-called control group and then a group that are exposed to the compound. Well, you're relying on people's memories and their honesty mm-hmm. when they answer questionnaires and you have to ask them, did you use this drug? Did you use this food supplement? Did you, were, were you exposed to these herbicides, pesticides? Did you use this kind of shampoo on your dog? This is something that people are very concerned about are these shampoos, these pet shampoos, because they contain mm-hmm. compounds that, that, that could cause epigenetic damage. And a lot of times, uh, a, lot, a lot of people, including pregnant women, are, are uh, giving their, their dogs a shampoo, and they are certainly exposing themselves to these compounds because uh, they're shampooing the animal, and, and the compounds can, uh, can possibly pass through their skin, and they, can, uh, and they may not be cleaning themselves properly after they've, they've finished shampooing the dog. Are they, are they getting themselves yeah. really clean and yeah. getting off all the residue? You know, these, these, these are all really concerning com- problems. And, and as I say, you're relying on people's memory and their honesty. You know, sometimes people answer questionnaires. Like uh, one of the questions is, um, how much alcohol do you drink? People always lie about that. They sound <laughs> overloaded. People will never tell the truth. Now, a lot of times I think they actually believe they are telling the truth when they say, well, I have just one glass of wine or a day or one every two or three uh-huh. days. And they may have, they may be having three or four a night, and they kind of think they're having one. And so these, these are all these, these factors that you have to correct for. Now, surprisingly enough, there's a lot of people, statisticians and population demographers, and they work on these questions. They, they work on questionnaires, and they have tricks for, for determining when people are telling the truth and how much they're exaggerating and how much yeah. in some cases are flat out lying because they just don't want to say that, yeah, I drink a bottle of scotch every night. And so these, these, are, these are all issues that, that uh, we, we have to deal with. And in the past, for instance, for years and years and years, it was very difficult to prove that cigarette smoking caused cancer. Yes. And uh, the reason was because people would not tell the truth about the amount of cigarettes they used or even whether or not they smoked. And another yep. problem was for years they believed that, that coffee, uh, drinking coffee caused cancer because most yep. People who drank coffee smoked cigarettes. The two went along together. And so it was very, very difficult to sort this out, but eventually they found ways to do it. And now we know that there's nothing in coffee that's bad for you. In fact, surprisingly enough, coffee is probably about the best thing in the world you can drink. It has all kinds of beneficial health effects. Yes, I've I've heard that. You know, here's one for you that I think I'm hearing more among women, if you want to hear one is there seems to be a growing movement. And then we're going to talk about some of these diseases because this is such a topic. But in terms of choices, many of us are choosing to use less and less makeup. If I have a choice when I go out for a walk or whatever, you know, in terms of makeup, and I'm just like, you know what, I really don't need to use that right now because I know there are chemicals in it. You know, you look at – now, there are 
products you can get that have fewer chemicals. But if I have to make the personal choice as to when to use it and when not, I'm one of a growing group of women, it seems, who are saying, no, you know what? I would rather just, I don't care, I don't care how I look, you know, whatever. Um, um, I'm not going to put chemicals today right this moment on my skin. And so there's a question, you know, and should we be looking at that more? When you talk about the dog shampoo, well, you know, there are lots of things. There's, there's We all use shampoo. Do we get it exactly. out? What about, you know, conditioners we leave in our hair? That's one for me. You know, they're just chemicals all around us all the time. Right. And then, unfortunately, you know, the, 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 the very sad state of affairs is that, uh, for instance, with cosmetics, the FDA doesn't, doesn't require cosmetic manufacturers to test the long-term health effects of cosmetics. And this yeah. is a problem because you're using these chemicals and they do absorb into the skin and they could yeah. potentially be quite dangerous. Now, how dangerous? Well, we don't really know. You no. know, there's some evidence that long-term use of cosmetics may, uh, may, may uh, be associated with certain diseases. But I think the bottom line is if you ask an expert working in the area, say somebody who's working in, in the field of pharmacology and studying these compounds, they would tell you that we just really don't know for sure, but there's reason for concern. And once again, this is a very, very disappointing kind of response. You want What we want is we want some sort of surety. You know, we want to know, yes, we can do that, or no, we can't. And then, unfortunately, yeah. in so many of these cases, they're just uh, nobody can really honestly make that statement at this time. Now, it goes back to what I said, in the future, Will we be able to? Yes, I believe we will. And and I think, uh, just to give you an example, back in the 1920s, there was a guy who was a, a socialite in New York, and he, he drank, as a lot of people did in those days, this bottled water that had radium in it. And in those days, radium was supposed to have all sorts of beneficial health effects. And this guy, because he was a big New York socialite, he was well-known, and he got cancer of the jaw, and he had to have the whole bottom half of his face amputated before he finally died from radiation poisoning. And that was one of the events that, that caused Congress to establish the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, mm-hmm. because nobody was monitoring these chemicals, these substances at that time. And, and of course, it was found, they found out that taking radiation into your body just had absolutely horrific effects. Right. And so, uh, you know, so I think that shows, you know, where we were then and where we were now. We know about the really, really bad compounds. But, for instance, if you look at, say, say we look at a drug that maybe, maybe increases the incidence of breast cancer by 1%. Well, breast cancer is so frequent among women that a 1% increase is extremely difficult to nail down. And once again, we get into all these problems. If you're saying, uh, if, if you're asking women, did you use a certain, uh, a certain drug or a certain health food supplement or did you use uh, some uh, compound cosmetics or something like that? Yeah, you're depending, once again, you're depending on people's honesty. You're depending on their ability to to remember how much of these compounds they use. So these studies are very difficult. But just because something's difficult, what did 
what did John Kennedy say? We choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And, and I think really we have the same, same situation. This is hard, but just yeah. because something's difficult, we don't throw up our hands and say, well, we'll just give up. We say, well, we need to spend more time. We need to do more studies. We need to be smarter, faster, carefuler. You know, we need to we need to do better work. We, you know, the, these are all the, the, the things that we, we need to do. And we should do them because they work over time. And and this is, of course, I think one of the, the messages. When I was a kid, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, everybody seemed to think that coffee drinking was associated with cancer. Well, they did yeah. zillions and zillions of studies, and over the years they've been able to prove that there's really, there doesn't seem to be any adverse health effects from drinking coffee. You know, so yeah. these these are the kinds of the kinds of questions, and and I think we can see despite how frustrated people listening to me are going to be, over time we do make progress. We do move forward. And I think that's, that's the way science works. I mean, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step backward. But, but I'm, very, I'm very optimistic about what science can do and what it can provide for us in, in the long term. And so even given the fact that, that we get lousy science, that, that we don't get studies repeated, that uh, people do crummy studies, in the long term, I think we, we're, we're moving forward. So I have, to be, I have to be pretty optimistic. Yeah. You know, I, I, again, I think that part of the message I get from what you're doing is just knowing, let me tell you, and this is how many people in the audience will feel, with no, you know, no microbiology basis whatsoever necessarily. I have somewhat of a scientific background, um, or I do have a scientific background, so I can look at this in different ways. But when it comes to the choices we make, now maybe years ago people might have chosen not to drink coffee, and it turned out that it was fine, it was even good for you. But, you know, sometimes when things are being studied, just knowing that epigenetics could be a factor here that you've raised this invisibility causes us to make wiser choices i think because it's like i said you know do i need to be doing x whatever it is that may involve a chemical do i need you know to to treat my yard in a certain way or do i need to to do various things and your your answer may be well you know the studies may be inconclusive but they're surely studying it right now and you know what? Right. Chemical exposure may impact epigenetics, which is a new area for many of us to even hear about. And that, to sure. me, already influences my choice in saying, no, you know what? Why should I take this risk or that risk? You know, I might as well. That's just yet another reason to to not expose myself unnecessarily to to certain chemicals when I when I don't need to, you know. Um, in, in balance. So, so anyway, I think that you do help us. You say that it might frustrate us that it takes so long, but just knowing that there are these studies ongoing and some evidence that you're surfacing, it's enough for us to be mindful. Maybe that's the word: mindful of what we're doing in our world. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 very important. And in my book, uh, I go into a lot of detail. Yeah, if people want to. Uh, more about epigenetics. I've tried to make it as, as accessible as possible. Uh, I don't go into too much of the scientific detail because there's a lot, if people are interested, right. there's, there's a lot of people who are actually scientists working in that area, doing experiments yeah. today 
are more qualified than I am to talk about all the really the, the really uh, special details, the, the uh, really um, nuts and bolts of how epigenetics works. I tried to bring in a lot of uh, personal recollections and people I've known over the years and uh, studies that have taken place and uh, some uh, I tried to tie in uh, our understanding of genetics with the way science fiction looks at genetics and uh, the way science fiction films look at genetics over the years. And so I've tried to make the, the book as accessible and, and as enjoyable, as, as lighthearted as I possibly could yeah. for, for a serious topic. Yeah, I, I would use the word approachable. Is that it was your endeavor to make this approachable for for people who are not scientists, just to to understand. And we couldn't even begin to go into it. I found, for example, some of what you said about diabetes interesting. Diabetes mm-hmm. is in my family, and you said some things that are really, you know, not what we normally hear about diabetes. And 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 you talk about many conditions. You don't just it's not isolated to one or two. You really explore several conditions in the book or diseases and and just what the epigenetic basis can be and 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 you know I know this show is going by way too fast as it usually does when when we have such a involved topic but there's something in general about epigenetics that I really feel is worth surfacing again is the inherent instability and how that may explain some anomalies sometimes and that you you talk about that in your book, and you know, um, those of those of people who know my show. I mean, I explore all kinds of things on my show. Um, I I kind of combine um, spirituality and science, and yet I believe that things can work through actual mechanisms. And so, when you talk about um, the instability, for example, of some some cases where where things can people can spontaneously recover and things like that there could be a genetic basis to that and to me that does not contradict i've I've had to reflect on this through the show that does not violate my either my scientific or my my spiritual leanings really mm-hmm. to think that there could be this variability um and right. so without maybe addressing that in particular but just in terms of variability in general could you speak to that a little bit? How you know this? How how there can be this instability, and that's the hallmark of of epigenetics. Right. Well, uh, I didn't talk uh, too much about it, but one of the observations that they made regarding epigenetics is not just chemicals in the environment or radiation or other factors, but actually um, psychological factors like stress can apparently produce changes in, in mm-hmm. the epigenetic uh, markers, and they can uh, change the expression of genes because what you've yeah. done is using the epigenetic mechanism, you've modified the, the response of certain genes. And uh, they, they say that, that uh, even, even situations involving poor parenting, when they, uh, when, when they stress, uh, when they do studies on mice where uh, where the mother provides a poor maternal environment for the offspring, this affects the expression of certain epigenes in the offspring, and it affects their health status. It affects their weight. It affects their 
there's sensitivity to various disease conditions, and uh, there's there's a belief, and once again, we need a lot more work on this, but there's a belief that uh, these kinds of stress factors may affect epigenes, and they, they may affect epigenetic responses in human populations. There were some very interesting observations that were made uh, toward the end of World War II when uh, uh, the, the Germans were occupying Holland during the last few months of the war, and there was a period of about six months where they cut off the food supply to the Dutch people. And so part of Holland had been liberated by the Allies at that time. This was late 1944, early 45, And part of it was still occupied by the Germans. So there was mass starvation, and uh, the situation was absolutely horrible. Well, what they found is that they, they see epigenetic changes in the children and actually the grandchildren of people who lived through this time, who survived yeah. and then went on to uh, raise families. And uh, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of interest in, in how these, these stress factors, psychological factors, can activate epigenetic changes both in animals and, and in human beings. So... Uh, so that's I, th I think that's a very important uh, lesson that we have to take into account that the uh, epigenetic uh, modifications can produce changes in, in the expression of the DNA gene. And so that, that can uh, have very profound effects on health, and it can be passed on from one generation to another. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it and the reason I mention it is just because I know it's a it's a general popular interest, and also people who tend to listen to my show, we're often looking for, um, you know, ways that we can understand things at a deeper level. And I think a lot of us are moving closer together, you know, that we're not, we're not you know, people who are saying, um, for example, if you spend some time in, you know, calm, watching your breathing, you know, doing breathing exercises, that may actually really help you with outcomes yeah. and that maybe there isn't there is something to do with epigenetics and so um I just find this all fascinating and how there is a balanced approach to begin to see how you know we're we're pretty complex human beings here and 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 things one thing influences another even if it isn't I know it's not your primary emphasis it's a it's a cool I mean it's it's a really interesting um alternative way of looking at things where we start coming together um, in right. our understanding. And, right. And I did want to mention, uh, this was a topic I wish, I wish I'd wish i had more time and more uh, pages to go into. Yeah. It. But uh, yeah. we studied uh, the effects of exercise on epigenetic uh -huh. expression. And uh -huh. uh, what they found out is that a lot of these, these genetic uh, loci or genetic Markers that they can study with epi uh, uh, with epigenetic methodology, they find out that there's a change in gene expression in, for instance, the genes for muscle growth. You know, and that makes uh -huh. sense that when you when you exercise, uh, you build more muscle. And yeah. uh, uh, what I think is exciting about that is this is just uh, an area that's in its infancy, but it could well be that in the future we'll be able to use these epigenetic changes in uh, markers that, have, that are affected by exercise, and yeah. we'll be able to determine what's the best kind of exercise. That is, you know, everything that we know about exercise is 
kind of mushy. That is, we think that certain kinds of exercise are better than other kinds of exercise. Yeah, it's kind of vague. Some yeah. yeah, some exercise mm-hmm. is better for women or better for men or yeah. children, mm-hmm. or elderly people, and and there's. Uh, but but this a lot of this is just kind of guesstimating. It's not really based on any kind of solid scientific observation. And if we could measure the output of these epigenes and say, well, look, we know for a fact that if if you spend a half an hour a day doing this particular exercise, you're going to get exactly this kind of benefit out of it. This would be the kind of thing that would be, I think, would be revolutionary for for exercise physiology and for people who want to know, you know, what kind of exercise. Like, I'm sure that, that you heard this, that they say, well, you, you need to jog so many hours a day or so many hours a week. And they say, no, you can just walk, and that will produce the same benefit. Or they say, well, you know, you've got to really run marathons in order to see a benefit. Or they say, well, running marathons doesn't do you that much good and may do you some harm. You know, all these things. We don't really know. You know, they're just based on kind of anecdotal observation. And they're not, a lot of times they're not really based on very good science. And as I say, I think epigenetics might open the door to a really, a really exact uh, method of measuring what exercise we need to do and, and uh, what's going to help us the most and what we don't need to bother with. Maybe we don't need to bother with running marathons. Maybe we do. You know, but yeah. uh, anyway, I think we, we have a chance to really answer all these questions now. Yeah, you know what I love about this is so often um, we hear about approaches that are reactive more than um, those that modify our behavior, whether as, Mm -hmm. you know, this is long-term, you know what this is, it's long-term preventative medicine is what it really is, is that it's looking at the the root causes of things Mm -hmm. and, and helping us modify behavior and and to me that is helpful to everybody everybody listening today oh yeah no question and about and it. how we view our environment as a society mm-hmm. um this is of service to humanity and and um it helps us get beyond fear which is the basis of my show because what things that help us with understanding um get us beyond you know um baseless fears that we can start to understand um, the basis of of how we can mm. modify and move in the right direction as a society. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, I you know this went by so fast. We really we didn't have a chance to really talk about the different conditions just because there's just so much to this. Um, but I feel like you've really helped us to to see a whole new area and a new light and. Um, I, I want to thank you for doing this research and your dedication uh-huh. and my making pleasure. it approachable. And, right. And in my book, I have a lot of footnotes in the back, and I have a lot of references that uh, hopefully you know, will open the door for people who want to, want to read more, who want to find out more about, uh, about a really, I think, a really exciting, fascinating uh, area of science, a real up-and-coming area of, of medical science today. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, um, thank you again for being here, and I want to remind the audience that, that the book is on Kindle as well. It's in, You can get it in different ways, and um, it's out there on Amazon. And, well, um, yes? The publishers, the publishers, McFarland, if you 
if you put in McFarland on a Google search, you'll come up with their website, and you can find the book. If you want to order the book directly from them, you can do okay. that. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but it's quite it's it's out there. It's quite accessible. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I think that 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 this show today reaches to people of different levels because there's there really may be students and others um, who are listening at a at a much more detailed level or curious about the details. And um, and I I know that you really are um, just doing top-notch research in the field and and I'm I'm delighted that you spent this time with us here today. Oh yeah, well this is really my pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, well thank you again. And um I will look forward to seeing how how this research unfolds. I I think that it's a fascinating area. Thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Okay, Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you to the audience today. The show was out in the health category today, those of you listening to this in the future. um, This show explores a wide range of topics, and I'm really appreciative of having um, a guest. Really, again, it's about looking at, at our behavior as people and as a society, and what do we want to study? What do we want to be focusing on? in terms of how we can heal ourselves in this world. And we may come from many different viewpoints about that. And yet, this is a fascinating area of understanding how our bodies work. Um, I do encourage young people to explore it. As a mother um, of, a, of a budding young scientist myself, um, I, I feel that there are new fields arising that are powerful in our world and will change change how we're functioning um, on a day-to-day level and the choices we're making as, as a civilization. And that's important. That's of true service to humanity. So thank you again for being here, everyone. Um, I will see you next time. I hope you have a wonderful day, evening, whenever this show finds you in the future. Um, I'm very thankful that you were here with us today. Take care, everyone. Thank you.